Yeah, when you're recording, if you put an SM57 center over the top of a grand piano and you like the way that sounded for that particular piece, who's going to tell you that that's wrong? You know, everything is just experimental. And I think music today would benefit a lot by people just not knowing what everybody else does and not even caring. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Hello, rock stars. It's your host, Lid Shaw, and welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to meet with recording professionals to hear their stories and learn from their experiences so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Bob Bullock, whose career started as a studio engineer in Oakland, California, training under such greats as Umberto Gatica, Reggie Dozier, Barney Perkins, Roy Haley, and Roger Nichols. And he became a top engineer himself, working with many great artists like The Tubes, Art Garfunkel, Seals and Crofts, Crazy Horse, Chick Corea, and REO Speedwagon, to name a few. In 1981, while working at Lion Share Recording Studio for Kenny Rogers, he was approached by the legendary producer Jimmy Bowen to engineer for Warner Brothers Records in Nashville and ultimately moved here full-time in 1984. And I say here because we're both here in Nashville. Bob's engineering credits extend over 50 gold and platinum albums, including Reba McIntyre, George Strait, Tanya Tucker, Patti Loveless, George Jones, John Anderson, Hank Williams Jr., Jimmy Buffett, and Steve Warner. Bob has spent 40 years working with major label artists like Kenny Chesney, Loretta Lynn, and Keith Urban, but in sharp contrast, now enjoys working almost exclusively with independent artists from all over the world, including Switzerland's Baton Rouge, Norway's Gunslingers, and Canadian acts Tyler Whelan and Friends of Jack. He has also expanded his musical contribution outside the studio and now lends his teaching expertise to multiple universities, including Belmont University and the Art Institute in Nashville, Tennessee, and Troy University in Montgomery, Alabama. Bob is also passionate about helping artists develop their work at a time when the traditional artist development label no longer exists. He recently joined the team of providers at PCG Nashville, the Science of Artist Development, a company dedicated to educating and mentoring artists. You can learn more about Bob and his work at bobbullock.net. Please welcome Bob Bullock to the Recording Studio Rockstars. Bob, are you ready to rock, man? Yes, I am. Awesome, dude. Very glad to have you here. Thank you for joining us. You've got a long pedigree of making records. I sort of covered it quickly here, but can you introduce yourself in your own words? Tell us a little bit more about who you are and how you got here. Okay, well, you covered a lot of it in the introduction. I actually started my career in Los Angeles. I was born in Oakland, grew up mostly down in Southern California, and so that gave me access to the Hollywood area. So I was able to start hanging around studios, I guess you might say, even while I was in high school. Cool. How did you even get into a studio at 16? I mean, those days, make a longer story short, but it, it, but it is amusing. In those days, you know, I was... Um, I had a band, junior high school, high school band and everything. So I guess in our sophomore year, uh, one of the guy's older brother drove us to Hollywood and we 
knocked on the fence at Sunset Sound, which is still there. We wanted to know how much it was to record a demo and we didn't have any money. And they were recording the Moody Blues there. And there was a guy, his name, it was Tom Harvey. And he was an engineer there and he let us in, gave us a tour. That really opened my eyes to what a professional recording studio was at the time. That was 1970. And then jumping to what got me to hang out in studios, I happened to go get a haircut and just in the conversation and Barbara striking him conversation and asked me what I did, what I was going to do out of school and all that. We were talking. Turns out one of his clients worked for ABC recording studios in Los Angeles. And he said, hey, one of my clients works for ABC recording studios. And would you like to go if I set it up? And I said, sure. You know, so I went with him. He made the call. We ran up to Hollywood on a Friday night visited ABC Studios, and I met this guy, Bob Diavola is his name. He started introducing me to people and letting me come down and hang out there. And so my first job that I landed was pretty soon after high school, I guess, but that was at a studio called Radio Recorders. That's cool. And that's a really unique thing back then that, you, you know, that there was even a job for you. I mean, that's probably a lot harder to land something like that today, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, that was the way audio producers, engineers landed in studios is it was a master apprentice situation. So the studios had staff, engineers and producers. There would be openings for an apprentice, I guess. I wouldn't even say intern because they were jobs, might have been minimum wage and it still was a real job. I guess the mentality in those days was that if they found somebody they thought was going to work out. They made an investment in in you. And so that's how I got in. So I was working at radio recorders and then finally got in at ABC Records as a staff setup guy. You know, they had me doing production copies and setting up sessions. And then I moved up to a system engineer. And then I got to where I was doing some first engineering. And then I went on to a staff position at Kendon Recorders, stayed there for a while. That's where I worked with Chick Corea, for example, and Crazy Horse. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about those sessions. Can you tell us some stories from, um, you know, the sessions you did, the records with both those guys, with Crazy Horse and with Chick Corea? When Chick Corea came in to Kendon Recorders to do, it was the Mad Hatter record, people booked the rooms for a couple of months. You know, it wasn't like they just came in to book a session or a tracking day. And that was your day in, day out job for that period of time. So it's I was almost like getting an apartment while you're making what? the record. Yeah. Everybody lived together. I and mean, sometimes if it was long hours, we would just stay in you know, hotels near the studio. For the most part, I could drive home at some point at night and then sleep and come back. And in Chick Corea's case, it was kind of a cast of different musicians that he had coming in and we would cut tracks one day maybe do overdubs on another day. The only thing we didn't do there was mix. They took the project over to Crystal Sound. This was the Chick Corea sessions? Yeah, yeah. Well, can I ask you specifically, I was always fascinated. I was a big jazz head, you know, in high school and, and going through college. And I used to listen to Chick Corea records and there was this amazing ability to create a, a huge stereo image of the piano. So he plays from left to right and it kind of goes across from left to right. Do you remember how you mic'd up the piano on a session like that? What were some of the things you learned from Chick and, and from recording those sessions? One of the guys I learned a lot from, Bernie Hirsch was his name. He was kind of Chick's regular engineer. And so I assisted Bernie on some stuff. I did some of the overdubs myself. 
Bernie worked with him even live, you know. So Bernie really knew Chick's style and sound. And most of the time in those recordings, it's so much of it is still the musician. There was no magic tricks. In fact, we probably at the time had maybe two AKG 414s on the grand piano. Again, when you work in an environment where you're spending a few months recording, you have the opportunity to experiment with different things for different songs, you know? And yeah. so, so that, so it's not really like there's any magic tricks. It's just being able to try something different for this particular piece. And then, you know, there's other things that contribute. We were working, I believe, a Harrison console that was mm. in that studio, but we were also recording to Studer. 800 analog tape machines. So all those things contribute. Well, that's cool. I love hearing those stories of these old sessions and, and the studios and, you know, the massive consoles, which even that's pretty rare these days. I mean, you know, you talk about being able to take your time in a big studio setting to look for the mic technique that doesn't necessarily need magic tricks or fancy microphones. It just needed the time and patience to figure out what was going to work best for that song and that session. And it seems like that's reflected in a way, you know, in the home studio environment today where people might have as much time as they want to figure out how to record their song. Well, how do you see recording sessions contrasting today compared to them if you're going in to make a record with an artist? It really was about getting everything the way you wanted it on the front end, you know, through the 70s and 80s. I still work that way myself. For projects I produce, I record them in commercial studios, at least getting the basic tracks down. So the only real difference for me in recording music now is that we have to work more time efficiently and have to make decisions much quicker because of smaller budgets. So I find myself having to do more pre-planning, more organized, more sure of what I'm going to do. There's pros and cons to that. That's a bit of a fight for me because you're telling yourself that Every decision you make has to be the right decision for the music and the artist. But aside from the time constraints, I really record exactly the same way I did 30 years ago, with the exception of recording to generally Pro Tools. But yeah, you know, so you're saying that each decision has to be artist-driven, but at the same time, let's hurry up and make that decision as quickly as we can, right? Yeah, and that's just a budget thing. Can you talk about recording Art Garfunkel as well? What was the record like that you were recording? Was he playing guitar and singing? Is he just singing? What was that recording session like? The part that I played, and it was really cool because I got to engineer it, but I recorded horns for Art Garfunkel's project. Was that Fate for Breakfast, I think, was the album? But uh, I think that's what it was Cool. Called. Well, tell us about recording horns. And what would be a typical arrangement as far as how you would record them? Would you have them all standing side by side in the same space? Were there certain microphones that seemed to be a wise choice for different instruments, whether it's trumpet, trombone, or saxophone? Yeah, there would be different uh, microphones of choice. You know, most of us would have the musicians standing side by side, not really worried about isolation. Because it was a section, I'm mostly worried about the musicians all being comfortable. And Would you need a pretty big room? Would it have to have a lot of air to be able to let the horn speak? Or could you do it even in sort of a medium-sized space? It was a larger room, 
But again, those decisions to me are always just song to song and project to project. I, I think Bill Conti was producing and I think describing what they wanted for Art Garfunkel's horn section, it, it lent itself to uh, a more controlled room. As far as microphones, it's just a matter of being familiar with what the range of different microphones are. On the trombone, I probably used, for example, a FET 47 with a pad on it. Trumpets were probably more likely Neumann 87s at that time also with a pad on the microphone. Mm -hmm. It was generally just like, here's a go-to starting setup. And if everybody's jumping up and down and happy, then that's great. If any one of the creative team, including me, say, gee, I think the trumpets sound a little thin. Let me try a different microphone. That's what we did. So sometimes it would be large diaphragm tube mics, generally just being cautious of sound pressure Interesting. So yeah, if you're doing kind of like a tower of power blasting horn section, you're going to need something with the SPL. What about some of the you know mics that are really available to people, home studio owners, for example, today that are not necessarily so expensive, but very useful mics? Do you have some favorite mics that are in the really affordable range? Yeah, I do. And I felt like there was a period of time, if you wanted a good microphone, you really had to have bucks, you had to have the money for an expensive microphone. That's changed immensely. Like there's uh, companies locally here in Nashville, Mike Tech, which make really, in my opinion, great sounding microphones. Love those guys. I'm using a Mike Tech Procast SST right now for this podcast. Yeah. And so bang for the buck. I mean, it just amazes me. There's a British company called Suntronics, S-O-N. They have a range of microphones from $150 to $2,000 and everything in between. And even their microphones that are a couple hundred dollars are, are pretty fantastic. And they, you know, they're offering ribbon microphones, tube microphones. I mean, I, we could probably go on and on. Even Shure, Audio-Technica, their microphones in the four to $700 range, I think are pretty amazing. So essentially the answer is there are so many good choices out there. It's almost like you can't go wrong. You can't go wrong today. Well, that's good advice. Bob, I have another question I'd like to ask you. I always like to ask our guests who join us on Recording Studio Rockstars if they'd like to share with us an inspirational quote, something to get our listeners who are referred to as the rock stars excited about making a record in their studios. It's always been my passion. My passion is to try to help an artist, try to change it up. I try very hard to get to know the artists I'm working with as a producer. If I'm the engineer, I want to get to know the producer and the artist. And, you know, communication is a big thing to me. So mm -hmm. have meetings with them, pre-production, talk about artists that they like, what they don't like, who they would like to be on the same radio play with. And there's a personality part of that, too. The vibe of the studio is really what even leads me to pick where I'm going to work with someone. I have a mixed room that I am absolutely in love with. I couldn't be happier. It couldn't be more accurate. 
I'm glad you brought that up. In fact, that is a big part of, I think, how we connected for the podcast, right? It was through our mutual friend, Carl Tatz. Correct. Yeah. And I could not be happier with my mix environment. Now you're mixing from your studio, which I believe is a Carl Tatz designed room. And most of our listeners, rock stars are out there with regular old home systems. Maybe they've got some speakers dialed in and got something started. Can you describe to us what your monitors sound like in a, in a Carl Tatz design? What it sounds like, there's really good imaging and separation. It's very, I guess, transparent in a lot of ways. So so the idea of what I call accurate, meaning that when I hear things around different systems and some you know, mixes, maybe they'll hear sound real cluttered and dull. They'll sound cluttered and dull in my room as well. You know, if I hear something yeah. that sounds really good to me, even coming through the car radio and I play it in my room, it's even more magnified of the clarity and separation. Mm -hmm. So I've always wanted more controlled environment. And with Carl Tess Phantom Focus System, it does. We're coming up on nearing uh, to take a break and then come back for the jam session. But before we do, let me ask you a few more questions here that I've written down. I know you've worked with, for example, I saw the monkeys on your credit list and also Todd Snyder and Loretta Lynn were some names I wrote down and Kenny Rogers. Do you have any great stories um, that you might like to share from any of those records? Um, stuff that was fun. You know, I, I also always like to ask a guest to share a story that was a, an important failure. I don't know if any of that kind of comes together in a story for you. Well, they've all been fun. Doing what I do is the right fit for me. I wish that for everyone. I wouldn't trade any of it because it's not that it hasn't been hard work and everything, but it's always been what I've been passionate about. And I, I still get just as excited to walk in a studio as you know, today is the first day I ever walked into you know Sunset Sound at 15 years old, which I actually wow. went, went by there last year, and it was kind of fun to <laughs> walk back into that that facility again. I love that studio. I spent I think it was only three weeks we were there in Studio C, but what a remarkable place and the most unlikely place to find real inspiration: the tech shop. Those guys were brilliant. Oh yeah, just the genius the way they maintained all this stuff and. It was like a real work of art just to see how they fixed and built new equipment for the studio. Oh, yeah. They build their own preamps and everything. A good friend of mine still works there that I worked with at ABC. His name is John Van Willis. Uh, he's still you know, one of the techs at, at Sunset. But So to answer your question, all of them have been exciting events in my life. Working with the Monkees was pretty special because I grew up in a period of time when the Beatles were making records and the monkeys had their TV show and they were making records yeah. aside from the fact that the Beatles did what they did and the Rolling Stones and, you know, some of the mega bands of that era, you know, I think uh, Mickey Dolenz was certainly the, you know, the voice of a good part of the sixties. I didn't work with them at that time. I was too young, but later I had an opportunity to work with Michael Nesmith on uh, just a bunch of music that ended up, I think becoming later a, compilation of stuff that he had done over several years, but that was really a treat. And uh, fortunately for me, they were going to do a record. The title ended up being called Just Us, but I think it was Justice was what they wrote. Right, right. Yeah. Got it. And it had it just them. They wrote everything. They played every note on the record. It was only 
the monkeys, okay? It wasn't a nod to Metallica's And Justice for All? No, no, it was none of that. It was, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, was just, it was supposed to be just us and justice. The justice being that they were always frustrated about when they were doing the TV show, that even though they got to participate on the records, the records, you know, I had a lot of studio musicians and I believe Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart wrote a lot of the songs and they weren't able to really do what they wanted to do was, you know, really be a band and write their own record and perform it. They had to work, you know, with those, those constraints. And so, so anyway, they had an opportunity to go in and do a record that was just them. And so that was real exciting. So I got to run around um, Hollywood with just the four of them quite a lot, being out with them everywhere where everyone recognized because people would look at me and I'm sure everybody would be staring at me like, well, he's not one of the monkeys. What's he doing there? You know? <laughs> he's probably the keyboard player. Yeah, something. right. Yeah, they're trying to. He's the tambourine guy. No, they, I think uh, who played tambourine on that he, stuff? Jimmy Jones actually covered that, you know, so. Yeah, well, very cool. Can you tell us a little bit about the Todd Snyder record you did? I mean, he's a brilliant songwriter. I, I've recorded him briefly at Bonnaroo in my Haybell studio. And one of the things I remember about recording him was he sat down in front of the same microphones I was using for everybody else, for his acoustic guitar and his voice. And instead of it sounding like I needed to go back to school to figure out how to record voice and guitar, all of a sudden it sounded like I was really damn good at this and I was pretty brilliant. It was one of those moments where I realized, wow, the tone that comes out of this guy is what makes it sound so good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, I recorded him at the Belmont Theater here in Nashville. But we did a real makeshift control room and I recorded the show and then we mixed it, I think, um, at my first home studio called the Dining Room. And that was one of the very first rooms that Carl Tatz had ever done. It wasn't anything to the level of what I'm in now, but it was already an early Phantom Focus room. And what happened on that? I had Carl build it to have a great listening room at home. It wasn't necessarily, I was not intending to, you know, bring in a DAW and mix and everything. But I ended up getting the first version of New Window. I started realizing that because of my monitoring, that I could do, you know, some editing and some, you know, mixes in there and it were actually quite good. So when I did the Todd Schneider record i believe that was oh boy records and i believe we mixed it at my little dining room studio very cool man well let me jump in here and ask you a question again related to mixing and being able to hear what you're doing a lot of our listeners rock stars are used to pulling up a plug in an eq messing around with it you know trying to decide if they like what they're hearing what is the experience how is it different when you can hear what you're doing and you're turning knobs on plugins. What are some of the things that you first notice where you're like, oh, wow, this is a different experience than if I do it in a room where I can't really hear what I'm doing? Well, I mean, it makes it credible. You know, I've had the good fortune to work in quality rooms most of my life. And there's been a few times, like I said, even when I recorded the Todd Schneider thing at the Belmont Theater, it was kind of a makeshift studio I had to put together. And I've had a few situations like that for live recordings. But for the most part, I had the luxury of working in rooms that you could hear what you're doing. When you take that away, the rest of the gear doesn't really mean much to me. You know, when plugins first came on the market, they didn't sound very good to me. They were great pictures. It was like looking at photograph of 
breakfast at Denny's or something. <laughs> and so they didn't really sound good. And then if you're at someone's home and the you know, monitoring system wasn't very accurate, what's the point of you turning knobs and doing all this? So to me, the very first place that I look is how accurate the monitoring is. You know, that's the most important part. I could make a record with a studio full of Shure SM57 microphones. And probably if I have a good listening environment, I can contour those sounds and everything and make it sound pretty darn good, you know. But without the proper monitoring, the rest of it is kind of a joke to me. Well, now I do have another question for you. Uh, how often do you ever reference your mixes on headphones? And do you find that that's a way to, to kind of level the playing field from environment to environment? You know, it confuses me, honestly. Now, if I if I just put on, a, I don't listen to headphones very often. I don't really like that. If I'm mixing and I'm trying to listen to what I'm mixing using headphones, it seems like whatever I think sounds good to me on the headphones when I play it on speakers anywhere, I could be in a car, it just sounds very different to me. Yeah, you know? yeah I've noticed like, some of that too. It's hard yeah, to my, transition from one to the other sometimes. Something's done. I mean, if something's finished and then I just happen to listen to it, on headphones, I say, oh, yeah, I like the way the reverb trails there. And I kind of like the way that, you know, the relationship between the guitars and the bass and drums. But typically, if I'm trying to do it in a mix, I end up discarding what I did. Yeah, I have found that sometimes it's pleasant to start my mixes in headphones, partly because it just kind of puts me in a zone and distracts me from other things. If I'm setting gates and reverbs and other things, it's very easy to hear what's going on with those things, but that only goes for a little bit and then I got to take them off. And then it's not till I feel the energy coming from the monitors that I really know whether it's, you know, sounds like rock and roll or it sounds like the record I'm trying to make. So I, I can appreciate that. Well, so now Bob, we need to take a break here and then we'll, we'll hit the jam session, which is our series of kind of essentially sort of rapid fire questions. But before we do, Rockstars, I want to let you know, a reminder that you'll find everything we're talking about in the show notes, which you can go directly to rsrockstars.com and then just search for Bob Bullock, B-U-L-L-O-C-K, and that'll bring up the blog post. Also, if you want to learn more about Bob, you can just go directly to bobbullock.net and find out about Bob, his studio, see his discography there. Again, Rockstars, thanks for listening, and we'll see you guys shortly here in the Jam Session. Hey, everybody, it's Lid Shaw, and I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of Recording Studio Rockstars. I really appreciate you, and I really appreciate your time. And as a way of saying thank you, I've created a special mix tutorial just for you, Rockstars, totally free, called the Mix Master Bundle. With it, you get over two hours of detailed videos watching over my shoulder as I mix a song in my studio. Plus, I give you the free ebook that explains how I recorded the tracks, and you get downloadable multi tracks so that you can practice your mixes, including the Pro Tools session file, using nothing but stock plugins in Pro Tools, all of which you would find in any other DAW, whether you're on Logic or Studio One or Reaper. Maybe you're struggling with trying to improve your mix technique, or maybe you just simply don't have access to multi track files or can't record a full drum set in your studio. I wanted to give you a chance to create your own mixes from full drum kit, bass, and guitars recorded in my studio. The song is called American Winter, and it's off my instrumental record, Skadoosh, and it's all available for you totally free right now. 
All you need to do to get it is text Mix Master Bundle to 33444 and I'll send it directly to your email. Again, that's Mix Master Bundle with no space to 33444 or you can go directly to mixmasterbundle.com, enter your email and I'll send all the files directly to you. Thanks so much, rock stars. We'll see you guys in the jam session. Cheers. Hey, rock stars, welcome back. We're about to jump into the jam session. My guest today is Bob Bullock, and uh, we're going to jump in for some cool questions with Bob. Bob, are you ready to jam? I'm ready. Awesome, dude. Tell us, when you started out in recording, what was the thing that was holding you back? What was one of your big obstacles? Well, I just made a transition, so I can't say it was an obstacle. I started playing guitar, I think, at like 11 years old. So I guess I first wanted to be a rock star. But what was a quick change is I was as young as 15 years old walking into Sunset Sound and seeing this real professional recording environment. And my first thoughts were I wanted to learn how to engineer and produce music so I could produce my band, you know, my Mm -hmm. music. I still play guitar a little bit, and I, you know, I played for several years after that what did change is i came to the conclusion that i didn't think i could be as good at a lot of things so i felt like i really loved the technical side of it and it was like a wake up of you know i've got to really put the time into this so yeah. that so i wouldn't call it so much an obstacle it was just sort of a a change of yeah you uh, sort of it sounds like you saw what was in front of you that you were going to need to uh, really go after to be able to do what you wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't want to be an okay guitar player in a band and an okay engineer in a studio. Yeah. Yeah. It was one or the other. Right. Well, cool, man. Well, now how about some of the best advice you received? I had the good fortune of working under the best of the best, you know, as you you mentioned right at the front of the show, Barney Perkins, Reggie Dozier, Roger Nichols, Roy Halley, Alberto Gatica, the list goes on and on. I got to be an assistant engineer with all those people. And and mostly what I got pretty consistent was, you know, you shouldn't do this unless you really love it. And it's all about working with people. You got to be a people person. I mean, you got to create an environment. Every, every person I just mentioned, their biggest contribution to me was always creating a calm environment for artists producers. It wasn't like engineers would stop and show me how to use a LA two-way or something. I could watch them, but they did teach me a lot about working with people and how to create a, a great vibe. So that's cool. Music that's cool. Yeah. I think that's the real essence of what we learn when we have a chance to be around mentors. I experienced a lot of that too. It's just some of it is, is equipment and gear. And it's like you said, I would walk into the control room, hear something and go, oh my God, that sounds amazing. How did you do that? You know, and then they might point at it or something, but more often than not, I'd have to go experiment with it later myself to begin to really understand it more. But again, it's like those elements of learning from somebody about how to interact with the people, how to make sure a session really flows, how to, you know, have a productive recording session, how to, how to not quit, you know? Right. Yeah, that's it. I worked for studios that would allow me to go in and off times and try things. And so I used every moment of that. So I'd work 12 hours with a client and they left. I might stay there another eight hours in the control room trying things. So I know that feeling, the old uh, not sleeping ever. 
routine. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so now, Bob, how about sharing with our rock stars a recording tip, hack, or secret sauce, something that they could use on their recording sessions today? I guess mostly, I'm just not really stuck on this is what I always do. I've never really been that interested in wanting to be known for a sound. I've wanted to feel like the artists I work with feel like I helped them capture what they were hoping they would sound like. Now, do you remember one of the first sort of hardware or, you know, something to do with gear and getting a sound? One of the first tricks that you learned in the studio where you felt like it was eye-opening to you? No, I wouldn't say so much tricks. I mean, I learned different things from different people. Al Schmidt was very minimalist on everything and probably still is today and made fantastic sounding records. Roy Halley was real big on a lot of effects and reverb and his work, like with uh, Simon and Garfunkel and Blood, Sweat and Tears. And so I learned a lot of little reverb tricks to give dimension from him. Umberto Gatica would use a lot of outboard gear. They all had different concepts and the way they approached it. But from all that, I realized, again, I only reach for the gear when I think I need it. It's all about being creative. Every situation, make, you just kind of Make fumble. something up. Yeah, and some of my favorite records have happened because of people that made a record that really didn't know what they were doing and didn't know how other people did it, and they just used their own ears to come up with something that sounded good to them. In many cases, those have become classic records. I like that. So Rockstars, essentially what Bob's telling you is that you have the secret sauce. All you got to do is just make it up and experiment and you're going to come up with the, the coolest next thing to do. And that's cool stuff. And I appreciate your reticence to be specific as if there's a universal band-aid for any, any uh, mix. But I think people love to hear suggestions because it just gets the brain going. It's just like, oh, that's a cool idea. Oh, that's a cool idea. Well, Bob, thank you for answering that one. How about sharing with our listeners a favorite hardware tool in the studio? Something that you seem to always be glad you've got around when you go do recording sessions or mixing sessions. Uh, you know, I, I don't really have any. I'm so used to working in different rooms and working with what they have. For recording, I'm flexible. If a band approaches me to record them, I'm going to take us into a studio that I think just captures the vibe and maybe the sound, but it, that could be an SSL desk, could be an MCI desk, it could be a Trident desk, a Neve, but those are things I might just consider, or maybe a tracking room that's, there's a room here in Nashville, it's called Ronnie's Place now, but it used to be owned by Ronnie Millsap, and it's not the only studio I work in, but I do favor that tracking room a lot because it's an old like 70s wood tracking room and drums and everything just have a different tone to me. For example. Yeah. Well, now, so for listeners who don't necessarily have the luxury of being in a place like Nashville where you can select from all these different studios, perhaps a good suggestion is to, you know, open your eyes a little more to selecting all the different spaces in your house if you're recording in a home studio, for example, you know, or take a portable system out and just record in different environments. That's a great way to capture unique and completely different feels and sounds for, for records. Right. The recording space is a little more forgiving. I mean, it's certainly when you work in a, a pro studio, some of the things we benefit from that is isolation from the outside. They usually have multiple rooms, some live or some deader. But even in your own home, if you're if that's what you've got to work with, you know, you might do a guitar overdub in a bathroom. You might 
do a vocal in a bathroom, record horns in the kitchen. I mean, you're just looking at a different ambient space. Maybe the living room is real dry and dead and you want to do like a, you know, kind of a more drier sounding percussion. Mm -hmm. To add synthetic reverb is only there to compensate for what you didn't have for ambience in the recording. If that's what I was kind of driving at, even like with, you know, using reverbs and effects, if I record a vocal, someone singing in a bathroom, and we love the way the echo sound or the reverb sounds in there, there's really not much point to add a plug-in reverb to it. Yeah, you know? yeah. Or in a very dry living room with a you know sofa and no RT time at all, then I might look at some different choices for maybe I could add a little bit of reverberation to that. You know, That's so cool. and rock stars again just point out. With all these different environments and spaces that Bob just described, you know, each one has a real different tone and sound. And sometimes those differences could be subtle. And the point of having monitoring or, you know, headphones that you trust or something where you know what you're hearing is that you really can hear that difference of those sounds. And it is pretty cool if you've got a situation in a studio with isolation for you to be able to put mics in different places, but always listen in that same environment, your, you know, your control room and really hear how it sounds way different in one room than another room. It's a, it's cool. The first time you get to hear that stuff. Yeah. And when you're recording, if you put an SM57 center over the top of a grand piano and you like the way that sounded for that particular piece, who's going to tell you that that's wrong? You know, everything is just experimental. And I think music today would benefit a lot by people just not knowing what everybody else does and not even caring. Well, so Bob, now share with us a favorite software tool, something that you might like having in the computer when you're working. I kind of touched on that with saying that I'm a fan of the UADs plugins and also Waze, but I, I use PSP plugins quite a lot. It's a much smaller company out of Poland. PSP has a couple of EQs and delay programs that just sound a little different to me. And so I use those occasionally, just seems to break things up a little bit, a little more boutique. Cool. I remember the PSP Vintage Warmer was a really cool plugin. I used yeah, to I, like, I like that a lot. I like PSP 42, which is a knockoff of the uh, PCM 42 delay. People creating music today could benefit maybe by having a, a more of a historical reference to realize that in early days of recording, and recording only goes back decades it's it, you know it was music for centuries before anyone had the ability to record it and play it back and so even going back into the 60s and 70s most people that were in a recording studio and bands really had no idea what microphones or how somebody else was using the desk that was in there hmm. you know and they just came up with their own instruments and then you had uh, bands like queen with freddie mercury who was you know brilliant you had brian may making his own guitars you know, all those things contributed. So like, what mic did you put on Brian May to get that guitar tone? Well, it probably didn't matter, you mm -hmm. know. It was Brian May and his, his guitar, you know. And yeah, of course, of course. And it's interesting, you bring out a little ironic twist in there is that at that time, there were also these bigger studios where you might have multiple rooms and people gathered and got together. Um, so if you were working on records, you might be face to face, you know, meeting with other people who are working on records, but it sounds like that would be an isolated pocket that was isolated from, you know, what they were doing in Memphis or what they were doing in, 
Muscle Shoals or New York or Miami or, or Los Angeles. And I don't know that anyone even really cared. I mean, I guess that was maybe a lot of it. You know, it's like today, even when I teach students, it seems like they're so interested in like, what's the template to get that killer bass and drum, you know, and kick sound or something. I don't know. What is a killer bass and kick sound? Yeah, right. I mean, you know, yeah. You have the kid who's asking the question has to first yeah. decide what is a killer sound yeah, and I, tell I, you I, that that is. Yeah, you're talking about, you know, the the clash or or Def Leppard. I mean, you know, and I mean to give you a couple of little quick examples. I remember, you know, I got to work with Gary Rickrath from REO Speedwagon. Um, it was an REO Speedwagon. You can tune a piano, but you can't tune a fish. Right. And I'm gonna tell you that probably part of the outcome of however that record sounded, there were some hits on it, and whether people liked the sound or not. Some of the sound probably had to do with the fact that they had played the tape so much that they were, you know, kind of worn out by the time I was doing guitar overdubs with uh, Gary. But I remember uh, he had they somebody brought in a Marshall, probably probably a Marshall 50 watt with two cabs, and I think I put a I don't know probably a 57 close and maybe a 87 kind of a little further away with a pad on it. And I remember asking him if he you know wanted me to set up the amp head a little bit standing there he said oh i can do it for you and he just took every knob and just swung it over to the right to max you know and uh and that was you know and we started recording overdubs that's great and then i was recording with crazy horse and frank but it was a frank medina i think was the guitar player um i brought up i had a 57 mic on a fender bandmaster he was using and didn't live behind the speaker cabinet but i was familiar with the fender bandmaster head and and cab he starts playing a Les Paul guitar, Les Paul custom, and I open up, had one mic on it, an SM57, and I open it up on this API console, and it's all distorted. And I'm thinking, well, you know, what's going on here? I mean, you know, I, I shouldn't be overdriving anything. What's happening? I went out in, in the studio, and it sounded like that in the studio, and I looked, and he had taken a razor blade and sliced up a 12-inch speaker, and that was how he created that neil young crazy horse sound that's wild man that's cool and rockstar is a reminder that that is a cool way to change your guitar sound but you probably won't be coming back from that sound if you slice up your speaker so choose wisely yeah that's mostly what i grew up in the industry with people doing were things like that that created a sound because there really is no right or wrong i worked with a punk band in the 80s that first day of tracking i set up i worked with their drummer and we had this really big sounding drum sound you know i mean it was at the time that was kind of like the usual like elton john kind of big drum sound and the rest of the band came in and they didn't like it at all they wanted it to sound more like hitting trash can lids and then they were happy <laughs> well, there you go it's all about adjusting on the fly you know figuring out what's yeah. next well so now bob how about uh sharing with us a resource or, or some advice for the business side of doing this i mean You've been doing this for 40 years and you don't seem to show any signs of getting ready to quit. So you know something about doing this for a living and being able to make it work. Do you have a resource? Do you have tips? Do anybody you want to, a name you want to share, advice for our listeners? You know, I, I think you got to find a niche. That That's the main thing to me. What I've found myself do is you're, it's constantly changing. It's an evolution. This is not an industry that anyone should be in unless they just don't feel they can do anything else, you know, because probably almost anything else is more reliable and 
makes more sense and all that. But if you're like me and this is what you're going to do, then the task is to figure out how you're going to keep making it work. So the difference for me today is I've found a niche of I have a mixing environment. I have a really state-of-the-art mixing environment. A lot of people out there that can find the means to record their own projects that they can't afford me as a producer, but they can record. I get a lot of people that contact me to mix their projects. That's that's mostly what I do these days. I'm not really teaching for anyone right now. I got a little too busy in my own studio to do that. I enjoy doing it. I'm mostly mixing and occasionally producing projects. So for everybody else out there, I say you just, you got to find your niche, find a way to monetize this at least enough so that you can keep doing it. And uh, if it's, you know, having a tracking room, if it's working, I have friends out in LA, they're working for like Warner Brothers Pictures and stuff. They're interested in film work and everything. And that's a big company. And so I've kind of seen every level, but you have to figure out how to be relevant. Yeah. That's great advice. And um, I think that you're absolutely right. And that's what I've heard from most folks who have continued doing this is that, you know, to begin with, don't do it unless you, or you're you're doing it because it's the only thing you can do. You know, it's what you you have to do it um, and to just be flexible and, and always look for opportunities. And it's cool to hear it from you, too, because sometimes when you're new to this, you feel like you look around and you think, oh, I have to be flexible because everything's changing. And you could have this sense, oh, is everything changing just now? You know, is the industry picking on me? But, it, you know, to hear it from you, you realize that 40 years of doing this, you know, perhaps your perspective is it's always been changing. It, well, it has. For a little bit of advice here, I'd say one thing I realized when I was really young, I was the kid and I was around people who had pretty fantastic careers that were kind of not relevant anymore. And what I saw with that was that they really weren't interested in changing what they did. And I thought, you know, I kind of like the challenge of changing, you know, learning new gear and everything. So really, a lot of my peers I saw leave the industry going digital and no longer analog tape and everything. I could tell you what I missed from those days, but I could also tell you that I've enjoyed the challenge of learning how to doing music with computers and all. And so that's helped me. I thank God that I had that attitude because it did push a lot of people out. Yeah, it's a constant change and you have to be able to embrace that. If you don't embrace that change, this isn't for you, you know? And uh, and and so that's, that's how I look. I look at it like I'm only relevant because I've been willing for 40 years to just look at the bigger picture and I enjoy doing this but it's going to be different now. Okay? Well, we appreciate that you were willing to be on a podcast with us today. <laughs> oh, you're, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. That, that certainly didn't exist 40 years ago. So final question to you, Bob, if you could go back and give yourself one bit of advice, you know, telling yourself perhaps what's the single most important thing you wanted to let your early self know about becoming a rock star of the recording studio, what would you, what would you say? As a young person, I think, it's important, and that's the advice I've given lots of students, is if you want to work in video games or you want to work in hip-hop or you want to do country music or you want to uh, work in film, go to the places where they do that best. If you want to work in video games, probably living and trying to start your career in Nashville is not the right place. You know? Interesting, if you want, yeah. You know, if you want to work in film, 
I mean, I have several friends that are doing very well still, you know, working at, you know, Warner Brothers and Universal, but that's because they're in LA, you know, they're not in, you know, Omaha. And, and so you got to go to the places where people are doing what you want to do and, and, and be open-minded to learn from the people that have experience. I think that's great advice. And, you know, I think back to myself moving to Nashville and ironically, you know, I live in the best place in the world to make country music and I never really cared about making country music personally, which is, you know, of all the places to choose to do it. But I think, and also when I first moved here, I thought that I didn't want to stay. So I, when you're saying this, I'm asking myself, Lidge, why did you stay in Nashville? And I think the answer for me would be what I learned was that there were incredible musicians playing together here. And at the core of what I wanted to do, I really wanted to just be around people who were making great music, making great music together, and really had an appreciation for making records. That's my story. The reason that I came to Nashville is I was kind of burnt out on LA. I grew up there and I was burnt out. I was actually intending to move up to Northern California because I was working with the Doobie Brothers at that time through working with Kenny Rogers in LA and then got invited to come visit Nashville. Kind of thought I would embrace the lifestyle in Nashville. Didn't have much experience with country music, but then it was at that point I realized that the genre of music, even though I grew up as a rocker, the genre of music wasn't so important to me. It was really just you know, working with creative people and great musicians and Nashville had that. So working with country artists was a challenge for me also and fun. And typically with the country artists, I like them as people a lot. And so that that made that a, a good fit too. But yeah, I mean, if, but if I wouldn't have been happy working with so many country, with country music, then this wouldn't have been the right place for me. Yeah. But um, I found that the music was more important to me than what genre of music it was. So. Well, that's good. So, uh, you know, again, the takeaway and the advice from you is just rock stars, whatever it is that you're into, figure out where the best version of that is happening. Go there physically or go there virtually through the internet, but just go there. Yeah, and strive for excellence. That's what I keep pointing to. That's why I'm not trying to be evasive, but when you ask like what microphones to use, all that, to me, that's really not really very important. Cool. Well, Bob, thank you again so much for joining us on Recording Studio Rockstars and taking time out of your day to be here with us and share all this insight. Can you let our listeners know how they can learn more about you and where they can find you online or, or reach out to you if you want? Probably the best source is my website, bob at bobbullock.net. I've got it set up where it kind of populates a little bit through Facebook and everything for photos or projects I'm working on and discography. I think uh, all music guide, I think that populates my website. So bobbullock.net is probably the resource for that. Well, that's cool, Bob. I look forward to listening to more of your records. And again, thank you so much for joining us, Rockstars. We're going to have links to all the stuff we're talking about with Bob in the show notes. And um, there was a great video from the producer's room with Dave Tuff that you sent over to me, Bob. We'll include that as well in there and see if we can find other cool videos of yours. So thank you again, man. I look forward to seeing you around the studio in Nashville soon. Okay, we'll do it. All right, cheers, man. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. 
And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RS Rockstars to 33444. Again, that's RS Rockstars to 33444. And I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.